So how many of you have known a person, a family member, a neighbor, maybe a coworker, who just seems to be resistant to the gospel? I mean, just really resistant. No matter what you say, how you articulate it, how patient you've been, how clear. They, they seem to be immune to anything that you have to say. How many of you know people like that in your life? And from your perspective, to the best of your ability, what would be your guess for that person or persons what would be your guess about why they are so resistant to the gospel? Yeah. Okay, the hypocrisy that they see in Christians around them. All right. I would say that's a pretty common one. Who else? Yeah, Frank. Okay, so they've experienced some great, I'm just going to repeat it so people who are listening can, can hear what others have said. Um, so they've experienced some great loss, painful loss in their life, and so they're angry. It's not that they don't believe that God exists, it's that they're angry at God for not allowing them to have or to keep something that is precious to them. What would be some other? Marianne. Okay, yeah. So the conditioning and the education that they received as children from their parents who were irreligious, who had no Christian faith at all, they passed that irreligiosity on to their children, and so it just doesn't register with them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So uh, because that they haven't, there were some people who have, who have never been loved. <laughs> so when you talk about the love of God or the love of Christ, it just doesn't have the same kind of meaning. There's the same kind of transference that they had when they, you know, from their parents. It just doesn't transfer. So I can tell you that when I did youth ministry in certain portions of the country, uh, where, um, where fathers were absent. If you were to say to them, you know, God, your father, or your father loves you, it just, <laughs> it didn't register because they had never experienced the love of a father before. So you had more work cut out for you trying to explain why that was significant. Yeah, yeah, Jerry. Yes. No, that's, that's very good. So I, my oldest brother, who served two tours in Vietnam as an Army Ranger um, and had to, to do and was involved in some pretty horrible things, believed for years that his sins or whatever it was that he did that he felt like was wrong, 
that they could not be forgiven. His sins were too great. And so, and here's the kind of odd thing, that, that in their mind, if God could forgive them of those sins, then those sins were trivialized by the way in which God forgave those sins. Because in their mind, they were unforgivable. Does this make sense to you? Okay, so I, I think that's part of it. Anybody else? Yeah, Ruth. Okay, so the, the, the old delaying tactic, right? You know, I'm going to have fun in my life, and then uh, when I feel like the, the end is near, uh, I'm going to have this, like, foxhole conversion, and, uh, you know, before the, the last shoe drops, uh, ask for forgiveness and, you know, get in like Flynn. Yeah, that's true. I think that there are people who think that way. And so it's not, again, it's not that they don't believe, it's that they don't want the interference of God in their lives until they have to have that interference. Yeah, Linda. Yeah. Okay, so Linda said that there, she's had conversation with people who said, you know, like, why do you believe? Because if you believe and you believe that this God is all-powerful and all-good, then why does he allow wars and famine and those kinds of things to persist in the world in which we live? If he could, you know, change all that, why doesn't he? And, um, and, so, there, and so that's the, that's the philosophical argument called theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, and so uh, that's a school unto itself in the world of philosophy. And, and so that's, you know, that's one of the arguments. And in fact, that's one of the, very much one of the formal prevailing arguments for the exist, for, against the existence of God uh, in the world today. So that's uh, very prevalent, yep, yep. And there are, there are some answers to that question too, by the way. So just in case you were wondering. Uh, what's that? Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we'll we'll try and get to that. We'll try and get to that. So So here we are, and I think it's helpful for all of us to hear from each other uh the different kinds of people out there who are resistant to the gospel. Um uh, well, I would think there's probably one other thing, don't you? Uh, I mean, for well, f- even today, for most of humanity, and certainly for almost all of humanity in the history of the world, human beings feared death. They were terrified of death. And it's a relatively new phenomenon today that people don't fear death. So, you know, the prospect of death had a lot to do because in their mind, uh, they were afraid about what might happen after they die. Uh, There was this innate sense in which they didn't live their lives as they should have. And if there's a God, you know, how many of you have ever read Pascal's Wager? Um, So it's P-A-S-C-A-L, Pascal's Wager. 
So Pascal, uh, who was a great philosopher and mathematician, uh, said that, um, look, um, uh, if there is no God, but you live according to Christian principles, then you will have made the world a better place. But if there isn't a God, and you, but you still live according to Christian principles, then you will make the world a better place. But if there is a God, and you choose not to live according to his principles, then the, the stakes for you are great. So you have nothing to lose, he's saying. Uh, if you live according to Christian principles, even though there isn't a God, you've made the world a better place. And if there is a God and you live according to Christian principles, then, then you will have saved yourself and still made the world a better place. So that's what, that's what Pascal said in Pascal's Wager. But, um, so this next thing that I'll be talking about today uh, kind of encompasses a bit of what we've been talking about, that that we wish that it were easier to be able to share Christ with people and for them to see the beauty and the wonder, the awesomeness of who Jesus is and to respond to that in a way that benefits them and that blesses them. Um, I was struck by Irene back here uh, as she was sharing you know, in our, during our prayers and praises. Now, she didn't get into specifics about why God has been so good to her. I think I know a few of them. But, um, but you could tell that her, her life has been struck. It's been shaped. She's been deeply moved by her relationship with Christ. And as she was sharing that, in my heart I was saying at the time, See, that is an apologetic. The sincerity, the truth for her in terms of what she was saying was a compelling statement. And so we wish, don't we, that, that more people out there could see that the beauty of what it was that she was saying and how she was saying it, so much so that she was moved to tears because of it. Yeah, I, I'm sure you could, Irene. And maybe, you know what, we should have you come up here. I'll have to get you a box to stand on. But maybe we should uh, have you come up here and share uh, some of that because I think it would be a blessing to hear. How, can I ask how old you are? 85. Are you 85? You've seen a lot of life. And you've experienced Christ in a lot of different ways. Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear uh, from her what some of those experiences have been and how they've touched her life in that regard. So uh, let's you and I talk about that. I don't want to put you on the spot. You don't know if you could do it. Maybe I'll bring the mic back there and you could just sit there and share. But, uh, I, you know, this is a side thing, but I just think that testimony, our own personal stories about how Christ moves, takes the theory of God and makes it 
puts it in the flesh, you know, and, and so people can say, this has been my experience in Christ, and, and it, now it becomes something living and something real, and that's, that's what I felt, Irene, when I heard you say what you said, so I appreciated it. So let me begin by stating then that um, in the last two sermons, we talked about the heart of the believer, the unbeliever, the heart of the unbeliever. And we said that there's, that there's this biblical truth about the rebellious heart, that rebellion is one of the primary reasons. It's one of the great inhibitors about why people come to faith. And so some of you shared some of those experiences, the rebellion right? I'm just going to wait until the end of my life, and then I'm going to make a commitment to, and I, I mean, trust me, and I've heard that many times over the course of my life, you know, I want to do what I want to do, and then when I can't do what I want to do, and, and the, the end is imminent, then, then I'll, I'll turn, to, turn to Christ. Yep. Well, this is true. Sometimes we don't, yeah, that's right. No guarantees, right? Huh? No guarantees except for death and taxes, and you don't know when death's going to happen, right? You just don't know. That's true. Thank you. Then number two, I said in light of that then, that the believer is not always bound to defend the faith nor to evangelize uh, intransigent, hardened, and rebellious hearts. That There are those people out there that they're so unmoved, they're so unwilling to change, um, that, that if you were to try and defend the faith or share the faith or whatever, um, you're really giving to dogs what is holy, and you, you're giving pearls to swine who will turn around and attack you because of it. So today I want to talk about the heart and mind dynamics that are related to why people either do or don't come to faith in Christ. So there are these, these kinds of things like, the rebellious heart and nature versus the contrite spirit. So we talked about that the last two weeks. We talked about how they are resistant and have hardened hearts versus an open and a receiving heart. Look, if you don't have an open and a receiving heart, you're in danger. And, and it's going to become even more poignant the, the deeper I get into this particular message about that. Today, we're going to talk a little more about the closed mind versus the searching mind, or the blinded and darkened mind versus the enlightened mind. So it's one thing to be rebellious. It's another to, be, to have your heart darkened or to be uh, unenlightened so that you can't hear, you can't understand what's being said. That's different. Rebellion is, I hear what you're saying, I'm not interested. Unenlightened is, I can't understand. I can't grasp it. It's beyond my ability. That's different. And that is one of the things that you have to factor in when it comes to defending the faith or sharing the faith with people. One, oh, I'm going to give you a little test here. What would be one of the great 
classic stories in the Old Testament of the darkened mind, of the unenlightened mind where people simply cannot understand. It's not so much rebellion, they just couldn't understand. Pharaoh, although his heart was hardened, but that's, a, that's you're close. Jonah. Jonah. Remember, Jonah wanted God to nuke the Assyrians, the arch enemies of Israel. And when God didn't nuke them, Jonah was mad at God. And God said to Jonah, Jonah, these people don't know their right hand from their left hand. Why is it that you want to see them destroyed? They could not grasp the glory and the wonder and the beauty of God. Again, let me just say, it's one thing to be rebellious, but if you can't grasp this, you're in danger. Don't treat that lightly. Because basically what that means in one sense, and there are some other parts to this too, but one of that, what that means is, it means either, if you can't grasp it, it means either the Holy Spirit has not enlightened you so that you can understand, or it means that the Father has not drawn you to the Son. Now, now you think about that for just a second. Just how ominous is it that in your inability to grasp what Christ has done or the things of God, you can't grasp them. They don't make sense to you. They can only make sense if the Holy Spirit lives in you and illuminates your heart. So if you can't, cannot grasp those things, it means that the Holy Spirit does not live in your heart. It also means that the God the Father has not drawn you to the Son. And I'll share those texts with you in a little bit. So um, I was going to do some memes, but I, I only have about 20 minutes, and if I have time, I'll... I'll uh, I'll go back to it. But I do want to go, and if you have your Bibles, you can go to John 1 5. John 1 5. So you're very familiar with this text. But this this particular test, text gives us sort of like the overarching view of things, where John records and says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Catalambano, catalambano. So that word catalambano means to understand, grasp, comprehend, to apprehend. In other words, to get their mind around it. So people who live in darkness cannot get their mind around the things of God. That's what he's saying there. They live in darkness. Their minds are darkened. 
So when we talk about darkness then, and this is what's implied, uh, and, and again, don't, so for people who would have been reading this or hearing this back then, when you use the word darkness, uh, a whole world of different images would have come to their mind, not so much like we do. When we think of darkness, we think literally dark and light. They would have thought uh, metaphorically much more than what we do. So they would have considered darkness as, as referring to the evil one or Satan. They would have seen darkness as sinfulness and brokenness. They would have seen darkness as lostness and confusion. They would have seen darkness as deception and evil and deeds that are hidden. They would have seen darkness as fear and hopelessness. They would have seen darkness as vulnerability and helplessness. And then they would have seen darkness as being associated with judgment, death, and destruction. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. And all of those things are implied. This would have been an incredibly powerful statement to make in, in that time. And the meaning of it would not have been lost in everything that I am sharing with you this morning. So to live in darkness means to be blinded to our sin and to the ways of God. And when you couple that with, we live in a world that believes that we just really aren't that bad. That we're, we have a few flaws, maybe a couple personality traits that could be improved upon. But we all know what Isaiah says. What does Isaiah say about our sin? What's that? That's right. The best of what we can produce, the best of what we can produce in our life is nothing more than filthy rags next to the holiness of God. See, we see ourselves as being too good and God as not being that good, that holy. And when we see it that way, our hearts are not illumined. They're not illumined. We have not seen, we have not been exposed to the real thing of who God is. And so they hang on to it. Voltaire, who I'm not a huge fan of, but, you know, like a broken clock, you can be right at least twice a day. But Voltaire said, it is difficult to free fools from the chains that they revere. If you can go back just a slide or two, uh, Bree. Um, it is difficult to free fools from the chains that they revere. And so we have those people like that. We have people um, who think in this kind of a way. Um, and this is the slide before it, Bree. I'm sorry I'm jumping around on you, but um, where the secular person or the unbelieving person says, I want to do X. And the Christian says, well, you're free to do it. And then the secular person says, but you think X is wrong. And the Christian says, yes. And the secular person responds, because you want to control me. And the Christian says, no, you're free to do whatever you wish. Then the secular person responds, but you're thinking X is wrong. And the Christian says, yes, but only because I want what is best for you. 
And the secular person says, but I want to do X. And the Christian says, but you're free to do it. And the secular person says, but I want to say that I want you to say X is good. Does this sound familiar? And the Christian says, I can't say that. And the secular person responds by, why are you such a hateful, intolerant bigot? Right? And I can't, I mean, I have, I've had many conversations with people very similar to this. But they can't grasp. They can't, they cannot grasp the things of God because the Holy Spirit is not informing them as the Holy Spirit does. And so if the Holy Spirit isn't informing us, we should be afraid. Now, contrast that with the biblical metaphor of light. So when, when the Bible talks about light, again, we see it very literally, but they do not. Light was always associated with a holy God. Light was always associated with purity and goodness. Light was always associated with direction and purpose. Light was always associated with openness, goodness, and illumination. Light was always associated with confidence and hope. Light was always associated with wholeness and healing. And light was always associated with forgiveness, life, and shalom. To live in the light means to be freed from the bondage of sin, our bondage to Satan, to be absolved from our sin, and spared eternal separation and death. It means to live in the presence of God. So, biblically speaking, then, what does it mean to live by darkness? If I were to use biblical texts, I would say that it's antinomian, that is, against the law, against God's law. Romans 8, 7. It is autocratic. That means we want to rule ourselves. We don't want God ruling us. <clears throat> Luke 9, 23. It means that we suppress the truth. Romans 8, 1, 18. And there is a lot of truth suppressing in our world today, particularly as it relates to God. It means that we have debased minds. Romans 1.28. It means that we have become fools. And the biblical understanding of fools is, yeah, this is like not very encouraging. It means worthlessness. It means to be worthless. The Greek, the Greek word for fool is raka. It means worthless. So if we live in darkness, we, are, we, we don't have worth in terms of advancing God's agenda and his kingdom in the world. Nobody likes to feel worthless or to be told they are worthless. But we've all run into that person in life where we wonder, what is your function? I mean, you are a black hole of just taking and never giving. Have you, have you, have you encountered that person before in your life? 
I think I have. And I'm not, and it's a sad thing. It's not, it's not a good thing. I mean, I, you don't revel in that. It also means to reject the heavenly, eternal, and it means to reject heavenly and eternal for the earthly and temporal. Romans 1.25. And it also means to be blinded by the God of this world. That people who live in darkness are blinded by the God of this world. And because they're blinded by the God of this world, they're in bondage to the God of this world. When you're blind and, you, and, you, and you're casting about, at that point in your life, almost any hand that comes out to you to lead you someplace, you, you would take. Would you not? But if you can't see who it is that's leading you, if blind guides are leading blind people, what does Jesus say happens to them? They fall into a pit. So people who are darkened in their heart and in their minds, who cannot see, are susceptible to all of this. So let's look at a couple of biblical texts here that help to explain this a bit further about how people are resistant to the gospel. They reject Christ that it's difficult to have an apologetic, or it certainly shapes the kind of apologetics that we have, the kind of defense of the faith conversation we have with them based on these texts that I'm about to share with you. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, I have about 14 minutes left, and I'm not sure I can get past this text. This is such an important text. The natural person, that is the worldly person, does not accept. They will not receive. They will not receive the things of the Spirit of God. So everyone here that shared about those people who resisted the gospel, this is what he's talking about right here. For they are folly, worthless. They will not receive the things of God because in their mind... Those things that you are sharing, the conversation that you are having, the principles that you are instructing, all of those things, they are worthless to that person. And they are not, in fact, I think either in your NIV or your, new, or your KJV, it says, indeed, they are not even able to. Does anybody have that text in their Bible? it says that? I mean, it says it even more strongly than this. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand. I'm wondering if anybody has that. Let me know if you do. And you, what do you have, Frank? The 
Okay. Yeah, so that's a good that's a good variation of what was said here. So get what he's saying here. So the, the person cannot understand because they don't have the Spirit of God living in them, and because they don't have the Spirit of God living in them, they consider what you are saying to them as foolishness, folly. So, <coughs> excuse me, when I go on my little Facebook um, uh, group thing with uh, philosophers and stuff like that, it's, exa- it's exactly what's happening when I have conversations with them. So, um, I, uh, one of the responses I gave this morning was this person was asking about how is it possible that God can be sovereign on one hand and that humanity can have free will on the other. If God is absolutely in control of the world in which we live, how is it possible that, um, that, that he can be sovereign and have everything come to pass like he wants it to on one hand, and yet on the other hand, um, we have free will. How can we have free will and God be sovereign? How is that possible? So, this was my response. And I said, God is so sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, that he can give humankind complete and absolute free will on the one hand, without ever frustrating and preventing his ultimate will on the other hand. In other words, it says more about God's insurpassability and sovereignty that humanity can have free will, not less. Imagine having a world where you are so much in control that every every being in that world can do as it pleases and it still does not frustrate or stop your ultimate purpose or plan. I mean, just how powerful do you have to be for that to happen? So I got somebody on there from England, uh, you know, who had you know, a trite response, and I, I reiterated in different words, but he couldn't understand because his heart was darkened. The Holy Spirit was not illuminating him in such a way that he could grasp it. So we go back to John 1, 5, where... Uh, they cannot, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness cannot grasp it. So if you are having conversations with people and they just resist it or don't get it, it may not just be rebellion. It may be that their hearts are so darkened that they just don't grasp it because the Holy Spirit, they either resist the Holy Spirit or maybe it's just not their time. So I have much more to say, and I think I'll finish this, because I have additional texts here that I think would be really helpful. But does this give you an, addif- an additional view on this? I mean, so that, you know, we've layered, we're layering this in such a way so that some people resist because there's rebellion, and then, and then there's this other additional layer where, look... 
there's this sense, there's this sense in which in the believer there's this compassion, almost like what God wanted from Jonah. Do you understand? They are so invested in the world of darkness. They are so conditioned. They've been so impacted that they can't get what it is that you're saying. And that maybe, just maybe, it just takes more time, more patience, more love, um, better conversations to be able to break all that down and to allow the Holy Spirit time to work in those people's lives. And maybe even more terrifyingly, maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe God the Father just isn't drawing that person to Jesus at that moment. Maybe, maybe not. So I'm going to stop here, and then I think I'll pick it up again when I, and we'll just explore these texts together because I want us all to walk away understanding these dynamics about what is going on in the world of, when it comes to the world of like how we share our faith and how we defend our faith because these, peop- these are real people, and we are surrounded by them. It's one thing for a person to be rebellious and you say, so look, I, I can't do anything with this. So I'm not going to give to dogs what is holy. I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. And I'm just going to, in this moment, while I still love them and care about them, I'm just going to shake the dust off my feet. Which is interesting, by the way, it's a very interesting image where Jesus sent out his, uh, his apostles and to share and to tell them about the kingdom and to do things, but if those people reject you, shake, leave them and shake the dust off your feet. In other words, rid yourself of the most infinitesimal parts of what was a part of their life if they resist. I mean, those people are scary, and those people live in very dire, consequence, dire situations. So there's that, and then there's people whose hearts have been darkened. They can't grasp it. Doesn't mean they won't. They just can't at that time. 